0: Uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon was a a popular and powerful Baptist preacher back in the 1800s. He was pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle of London for 38 years. The church could seat 5,000 people plus another 1,000 standing. Uh, About 10,000 people considered themselves a part of that church. That makes him one of the first modern megachurch pastors. But he did color a little bit outside of the traditional Baptist lines back in the 1800s. He loved an occasional cigar, in moderation only. And he would meet regularly with groups of young men and discuss the Bible over cigar and sometimes a little whiskey, and he would mentor over cigars. That's a a practice continued today by a few professors at our Alliance Theological Seminary in New York, but I digress. There's a fun story of when another well-known preacher of the 1800s, D.L. Moody of Chicago, came to visit Spurgeon in London. Moody admires Spurgeon from a distance and really considered Spurgeon to be his professional mentor. However, when Moody arrived at Spurgeon's home, Spurgeon answered the door with a cigar in his hand. And as the story goes, Moody almost fell down the stairs in shock as he said, How could you, a man of God, smoke that? Spurgeon took up office of, of his cigar, walked down the steps to where Moody was standing in shock, put his finger on Moody's rather rotund stomach, smiled and said, the same way you, a man of God, could be fat. Touche. The founder of the Christian Missionary Alliance that we were a part of, A.B. Simpson, also enjoyed an occasional cigar. And the head office of the Alliance Church in Bolivia was given a portrait of A.B. Simpson to hang in their office. Problem was it showed him with a cigar. So they cut the cigar out of the picture. And if you happen to go to the national office of the Alliance in Bolivia, that picture is still hanging. And if you look carefully, you'll see that part of the picture has been doctored a bit. So it's not just famous Baptist leaders who push back against tradition. The founder of our church family did as well. Now, there's another story told of Spurgeon that was a little outside the box of how Baptists of the day understood the Holy Spirit, and it's this story that will lead us into our study of the book of Acts today. Spurgeon tells the story of how one day he was preaching as usual when all of a sudden some words came to him that he just knew that he needed to speak. They were words of warning uh, for someone in the congregation that he just didn't know. Words came to him describing how this man was cheating his employer, stealing from him, and getting away with it. Spurgeon found himself saying that this man should repent at once or he'd be found out. Spurgeon himself was somewhat surprised about getting this word, and he was really a little bit anxious as he gave it publicly. Like, where did these words come from? Was it real? Uh, Who was he actually talking about? After the service, a young man came up to Spurgeon, quite agitated. Please, he said, don't tell my boss, I'll give it all back. The man repented, made full restitution, and the situation was saved. And Spurgeon was faced with the strange reality that without asking for it or even seeking it, God gave him a word of knowledge about someone he didn't know. It was not common for preachers of that day, particularly of the non-Pentecostal variety, or even today, to speak such supernatural words of knowledge publicly in a service, especially when thousands of people were present. And when Spurgeon gave that word, more than a few eyebrows were raised, and they all left not knowing whether this was legitimate or not. And it's that story of just kind of outside coloring outside of the traditional lines with a word of knowledge that I want to use to lead into a story from Acts chapter 5. It's a story that many of us don't like and are not comfortable with. It's a story of Ananias and Sapphira who got zapped by God. Their lives are snuffed away in a snap for pretending to be more spiritual than they really were. I mean, it's a scary story if you take it real seriously and think about it. I mean, it's enough to cause some of you to run from the faith that, not that that would help, but The story is actually really complex. And I want to take a look at it at two different levels. There's what I call the supernatural level. There's a whole lot going on in the realm of the supernatural. And Luke who writes the book of Acts, uh, he just tells it as if the unseen supernatural world is a common reality because, well, it is. And then the other layer is, there's a value. There's a lesson to be found in this story and it's linked to the supernatural, but it has to do with day-to-day morality. It has to do with how we live as followers of Jesus. It's a story about the need for you and me to live with real authenticity, to live with honesty. And there's a link, I think, between the two layers. What I see in this story is that being authentic, honest, real, even raw in our honesty with one another and with God, authenticity and honesty is one key to God moving supernaturally among us. And I think inauthenticity, being less than honest, kind of stunts and quenches the spirit of God. Let me just read the story to you from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. You can read it in your Bible, your Bible app, or up on the screen here. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, and he brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, was not the money there at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not just lied to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that's the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she she fell dead at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Now, isn't that an exciting and inspiring story? Right? Aren't you all glad you came for that story today? Right? Tell a lie at church. You die. Okay? Sure you want to be here right now. I mean, any of you ever been dishonest before? Any of you? Where's God? Where's God? Our God, full of love and mercy. We'll get to that in a minute. You know, there are guys in this city, uh, when they get invited to Fort City, and, and they've said this to me, hey, if I ever walked through the doors of your church, I would get instantly fried if I only knew what, if you only knew what was in my past, or really what's in my present right now, I would just be struck dead. And it's kind of said as a joke to put you off, but it kind of isn't, if you know what I mean. But, but here's what you can say to them. No worries. In the New Testament part of the Bible, God never zaps unbelievers. On it only happens to believers who are dishonest. So you're okay, well, for now. Yeah, that doesn't help either. So we'll get back to that. But first, let's look at the supernatural word that's behind what's going on here. So the first thing I want you to notice is that, like Spurgeon, the Apostle Paul got a word of knowledge from the Holy Spirit, or if you want to call it a prophetic word, uh, the, that might, but I, I would call it a word of knowledge. The Holy Spirit gave Paul supernatural insight into something he would not have known otherwise. The Apostle Paul, uh, elsewhere, describes this kind of work of the Holy Spirit like this. When you suppose you speak, now suppose you speak what God has revealed. He's given you a word. When unbelievers or outsiders come in, you will show them where they are wrong and convince them that they're sinners. The secrets in their hearts will become known, and in this way they will quickly bow down with their faces touching ground, worship God, and confess that that God truly is among you. Friends, as you get to know Jesus, as you go deeper with Jesus and invite the Holy Spirit to fill you, or you ask every day for the Holy Spirit to fill you, to lead you, to speak to you, you will discover that the Holy Spirit is smart, that the Holy Spirit knows what you don't know, And the Holy Spirit can give you a word, a supernatural word of knowledge that can really make a difference in people's lives. What what Paul tells us is that mostly what the Spirit does is help us to help other people get their lives right with God. The Spirit uses us to help other people find the healing they need to live well, to have their sins forgiven, and to live filled with the love of Jesus. It's not very common to see God zap someone in their dishonesty, okay? Okay seriously in the new testament you only see this directly one time what you do see is that words of knowledge and prophetic words come to us so that we can encourage others so that god can use us to help others find healing and wholeness and lead us and lead some to faith in jesus so if you let him the holy spirit will use you to help other people become convicted of their need of jesus The Holy Spirit will use you to help other people see their need to be cleansed and made whole, to see their need to be forgiven, to to really figure out how to find healing and wholeness. God can use you in very beautiful ways to do that. It was February uh, 2007. Uh, Jeff Littleton, a youth with a mission, a Waiwan worker from Malaysia, was visiting his family in, in Thunder Bay where I was serving at the time. He had quite the reputation for being used of God to speak words of prophetic encouragement. So I invited him to come to a staff meeting at my church in Thunder Bay and to speak and to pray over uh, each one of our pastoral staff members and our interns. He had never met any of us before. He really didn't know any of us at all. And as he prayed for each of us, he was able to understand how each of us was gifted by God, what those gifts and talents were. He was right on target and he gave us a word about how God wanted to use those varying gifts on our team. It was incredibly encouraging and incredibly powerful. When Jeff spoke, there was no other explanation than this was unmistakably divine. I mean, no other explanation. We recorded the prophetic words and had them described and and to be honest... I found the word that he gave to me to be, while really powerful and encouraging, and it was, it had parts to it that were quite confusing. From the years 2007 to 2012, there was a part of that word that never made sense to me. It was not until I got to Fort McMurray, and really it was not until I was here for a couple of years that that word began to make sense to me. It it took five to seven years before I could see what God was up to, and that God had spoken uh, that word through Jeff to help me understand God's plan for me here in Fort McMurray. Now, I don't have many instances that are as intense as that word from Jeff in 2007. I've I've had a few, but more of what I've experienced is just the fact that our God does speak, does whisper, does give us words of knowledge, prompts us, pushes us to do something, to say something to this person or that person. Our God does speak if we will listen. So as Luke tells this story, he just assumes that it's normal to expect God to speak to give these words of knowledge hey, the Holy Spirit knows a whole lot more than we do and the Holy Spirit leads and guides if we're, opening to, if we're just open to listening and following. So the question is, are you open? Are you opening to listening and following? Luke assumes that this is just like normal stuff. Hey, a big part of the story of Ananias and Sapphira is just to tell us that the Holy Spirit is real that he is directly in touch with his church and he's directly in touch with you and me if we're listening. That's a key part of this story. There's a second thing happening in this story on the supernatural front. It's something that we tend to be a little uneasy about and that's the influence of the evil one and the work of the demonic in our world and even among followers of Jesus. The apostle Peter has this to say to us, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The writers of the Bible would simply remind us that we live in a world that in the unseen realms is full of what the Bible calls fallen angels or demons who seek to be a negative, destructive influence on the world. You you can't say the devil made me do it, but you can be influenced by him or his demons. They are a simple day-to-day reality of life in this world. In our logical, scientific day and age, we tend to scoff at that. But go to other parts of the world and there's no scoffing. Just a lot of stories of hurt and destruction that comes from surrendering to these influences. Those stories of hurt and destruction are told here as well. We just don't always see what's behind them. Now notice what the Apostle Peter said to Ananias. How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? Obviously, I mean, Satan was an influence in this situation, right? Now, Ananias could have resisted Satan's temptation as any believer in situations like this can do. You, as a believer, you are never a victim of the work of Satan or his influence. You can resist. The Apostle James says, Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The Apostle Paul, he he doesn't let us off the hook either. He says, God is faithful He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. I I mean, I don't mean to ignore the fact that Satan seems to gain more influence and control over some believers than others. However, I don't believe it's theologically sound to say that a believer can be, you know, demon-possessed. But it is clear that a demon can have influence. The best way to translate what the Bible is saying to us, uh, there's this word in the Bible, scholars debate it a little bit, right? So not everyone sees this eye to eye, but there's a word "diomatsumai," that some translations use the word demon-possessed, but might be better translated as just demonized, meaning influence. And, and that influence varies depending on how much you open yourself up and surrender to those influences in your life. You can surrender to Jesus, or you can surrender to other influences, okay? And Ananias surrendered to the extent that in some way he allowed Satan to fill his heart. I know, I've opened a can of worms here. And I'm not going to try to shut it, okay? I just want you to notice that when Luke writes, he just assumes that the Holy Spirit is actively at work in the church, speaking to believers, while at the same time, he assumes the devil is at work, being a negative, destructive influence. That's just the reality of the world we live in, like it's an everyday reality. And we as Christians, we are a no-fear people. In the end, we have nothing to fear. We just need to be aware, sober-minded, vigilant, And the Apostle John would simply remind us, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And who is in you? Jesus. Jesus is in you. And he's a whole lot greater than the devil who prowls around this world. Never forget that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So that's kind of the background of the story. We, We live in a world with an unseen supernatural realm all around us. There's a battle going on. Really, if you take a look at the world, you can see it quite clearly. It it happens, it starts in the unseen realms. The battle involves us, but with Jesus, we can win. So no worries. No worries when you hang on to Jesus. No worries. But if you're not sure about that, I would just encourage you to take your worries to our prayer team during communion or at the end of the service. Seriously, bring your struggle to our prayer team. Tell them your story and, and let them pray for you. So... That leads to perhaps what I would call the main point of the story. This is a story about a core value of the Christian faith, authenticity and honesty. Oh, and about getting zapped for telling a lie in church, don't get too uptight about that. It's, it's not something you see happening much in the New Testament part of the Bible or throughout church history. This is more a one-off than normal, okay? It's, it's there to make a point. And I know, I know, you would have much rather see the story unfold like it did for Spurgeon, The guy repented, made restitution, got things right, but this story doesn't go that way, and I can't answer all the questions and give all the answers as to why God chose to work so drastically here. Except to say, in this era of grace, when God takes us just where we're at, just takes us where we're at, loves us, and invites us just as we are into a better life, our God is still holy. And our God still has the right to execute judgment. And it's just a reminder that while God is good, God is love, he is also holy. And that his holiness is just not always safe. I'll just leave it there. It's the best I can do. And really that is okay. We'll just let God be God, okay? So let's take a look at what's going on. And the story really starts back in Acts 4 about a guy named Joseph. Joseph is a Levite. That means his family and his parents and his ancestors lead worship, and they did security in the temple. So Lucas, now there's a job description, worship leader and security coordinator, okay? Anyways, Joseph is drawn to become a follower of Jesus. His heart is transformed by Jesus. Joseph has this compassion, this heart, this desire to serve the poor, to to kind of leverage his resources, to use his money to help others, to help strengthen the church. He hears the Spirit of God whisper to his heart to sell a piece of property and bring the proceeds to the apostles at one of their church services, and he responds. And there is no pressure for him to do this from the church, okay? He just feels led of God, and his heart makes a free will decision to give. And so he brings one big bag of money to church with him. The idea is these funds would be used for the poor and to see God's kingdom advance. This is like the first huge donation the church ever received. Peter and the team are pretty overwhelmed by his generosity. I mean, this is big. So they bring the guy up front and they ask, what is your name? He says, my name is Joseph. And they go, your name is no longer Joseph. We're going to give you a new name. And they name him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Barnabas is a huge encouragement to this early church. Wow. I want to be like Barnabas. I I want to have faith like Barnabas. I I want to be a giver. I wish I could give like Barnabas. Yay, Barnabas! So then you have Ananias there. He's watching Barnabas. He's watching this fully devoted follower of Jesus drop the money at the front of the church. He's watching the celebration that's happening. He's watching the new name. And and I think something happened inside of Ananias where he went, I kind of like that attention. I, I want that kind of recognition. I want a new name. I I want to have influence. I I want to be a leader. I want that. So Ananias, along with his wife, Sapphira, called the real estate agent. They put up a sign, and in no time at all, they have a sale. And when they get all that money, uh, they're thinking, Wowzers, that's a lot of money. And he starts to think, Do we really need to give all that money? The church doesn't need all that money. We don't need to. let's just give the church a portion you know what, that would be just fine. There was no obligation for them to do otherwise. They were free to give whatever they wanted, whatever they believed God was leading them to give. Since the first days of the church, giving has always been a free will deal. But Ananias and Sapphira made a decision, a decision not to live authentically, to pretend, a decision to be dishonest. Uh, They bring the money, put it at the feet of the apostles, and they're hoping for a lot of praise and accolades. They're hoping they'll get a name. They're hoping they'll get a little bit of influence, Uh, hoping they'll become pillars in this local church. But you can't trick Peter who is filled with the Holy Spirit and has a prophetic gift. Peter says to Ananias, God has been doing such a sweet thing in our midst, You've just pushed that to the side. You've allowed the the spirit of evil to fill your heart and you've lied not just to us, you've lied to God. Why couldn't you be authentic? Why couldn't you be honest? Why couldn't you be raw? Why why couldn't you be real? I mean, why couldn't you be vulnerable? Why, Why did you put up a front? And Ananias denies it, just denies it and the scriptures say that at that moment, Ananias drops dead. This is a story about living authentically. Three hours later, Ananias' wife shows up and Peter starts asking her some questions. What happened? Did you give the full amount? Is this what you were supposed to give? And Sapphira was like, totally, we gave everything. We didn't keep anything back. And at this moment, the people who had taken her husband out and buried him have just walked in, probably sweaty and dirty. And Peter just goes, you know what? The men who just buried your husband are back and they're about to bury you. And the Apostle Luke records that Sapphira at that moment drops dead. And the Apostle Luke then tells us great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Let me just say something about what fear means here because when we think of fear, we think more like a dark, foreboding angst, right? That's not how the Hebrew people and the first church understood fear. Fear was a thing of reverence. Fear was a moment when you stepped back and you recognized holy ground. Fear was a thing that would lead to awe and wonder. Fear was realizing that the glory of God was in their presence. And what the fear did was to make the people recognize that God's presence just wants to know what's really going on in people's life, that God's presence creates authenticity. In a moment, we're going to respond by coming forward for communion. Friends, what the bread and the juice say to us is that God isn't focused on what happens on the outside and the ways that you and I kind of show how good we are and how much we are worthy to be loved. No, our righteousness does not save us. It is Jesus who rescues us. It is Jesus who broke himself open, poured himself out so that we could be made right. I mean, that's what communion set up here is all about. Again, this is a story about living authentically. It's a story about how destructive your life can be not just to you but to those around you when you don't live authentically, when you don't tell the truth, when you're not fully honest. You ever do what Ananias and Sapphira did? You find yourself trying to perpetuate the perception that you have it all together? You ever try to paint a picture of yourself that is not, you know, totally truthful? There's an attitude that a lot of us have that what I do doesn't affect you, doesn't affect me much either. And friends, this is where you're surrendering to a lie. Maybe even a lie from the evil one. But the truth is, your family, where you work, you know, the sports team, your kids are a part of, this church, we're all communities that get weakened and hurt by dishonesty, however subtle. But we become so much more powerful when we live with tenacious authenticity, when we are real, raw, authentic with each other and with God. Hey, it's not about being perfect, not at all. It's just about, you know, working up, being honest. It's being willing to call out for help when you need it. I mean, when was the last time you called out for God for help? Help. I have this addiction in my life, and I can't stop taking pills. I've got this addiction in my life, and I can't stop looking at this or experimenting with that or just having too many of these. Or, or when was the last time you found yourself living so far outside of your means that you go, I'm spending and I'm spending and spending, and it's robbing me destroying me maybe today the most authentic sacred and holy thing that you can do is simply say i'm at the end of my rope help and and you know that's really what communion is all about it's where something supernatural happens when we call out for help it's where god's presence comes in and brings us the help and the healing that we need Again, in a moment, we're going to invite you to come forward and to take a piece of bread that represents the body of Jesus nailed to the cross to pay the penalty that we owe God for our dishonesty, for our inauthenticity, for our sin. And we're going to dip it in juice that represents the blood of Jesus that cleanses us, that empowers us to become transformed people who lead and live radically authentic lives. Friends, this is where the healing and forgiveness and transformation comes. It comes at the cross. As you come forward, really, this is a time where you surrender to Jesus. You surrender to the truth about who you are and what you've done and, and the truth that Jesus loves you just as you are. He loves you warts and all, and he just wants to be, be given permission to transform you for the better. So as you come forward, Would you invite God's presence through the Holy Spirit to flood your life with his healing and forgiveness so that you can be authentic, honest, and live a life like Barnabas and not like Ananias and Sapphira? I believe that God's presence wants to dwell in each of us, just changing the way we live. We're not trying to be perfect. We're just trying, with God's help, to be authentic, dependent, expecting, desiring, Surrendering so that God can have more of his will happen in our lives and in this church. Now, as we come forward for communion, the middle stations here are gluten-free. And as well, during communion, our prayer team will be available to serve you after you've partaken of the bread and the juice. And one more thing, you can feel free as you come up to partake right up here, or you can go back to your seat. What I just encourage you to do is is just take a moment to reflect on all of this and to just ask God to be at work. Ask him to forgive, ask him to change, to empower you. Uh, Just seek God to have an encounter with him in the midst of communion. Let's pray and uh, bow with me for a moment of prayer. Father God, I thank you for Jesus and his death on the cross that just allows me to come to you just as I am, even with my dishonesty and inauthenticity. I ask you to forgive me. I ask for your Holy Spirit to come into my life, to fill me. I ask for you to make me an honest, authentic person, no pretending, no masks. Lord, today I surrender you, not to the lies that are all around me or the voices that are rooted in the lies of the evil one. And I commit to listening to you reading your word, and listening to you, uh, I commit to just allowing you to speak to me and drown out the lies that are all around me. As I come forward for communion, I want to meet with you, be empowered by you. As I partake, I invite you to flood my life with your life-transforming presence and power. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.